all the way to the rack, and that'll do it. Are they calling a foul or not? No. No foul call. No. That's it. And Utah prevails by two. What's up, guys? Welcome to Birdwatch. I am Christian Clark, the Pelicans beat writer for NOLA.com and The Advocate. Here today with special guest Sarah Todd, the jazz beat writer for the Deseret News. Sarah, how are you doing today? Doing good. Looking forward to some basketball here pretty soon. Yeah, I, I can't believe it's here. Um, I, I remember when all this was happening in March. Uh, I'm going to be completely honest. I did not do the research that I should have been doing at the time. I, I did not grasp what was about to happen. I thought everybody was just going to go into their homes for two weeks and then every everything was going to be fine after that. Did you, you know, as that was happening, like really understand what we were about to have to do? Well, I was... I I was on the complete opposite end of the spectrum as you because I had been like over researching and paying attention to what was going on in other countries. And leading up to that day when everything shut down, I was already like, what are we doing? Why are we in arenas? We shouldn't even be doing everything should have been shut down weeks ago. And then when it did shut down, I was hundred per like, if you would have told me the NBA season was going to come back, I would have been like, no, it's not. We're done until 2021. It's over. So I, I was on the opposite end of the spectrum. <laughs> okay, well, I, that, w- that makes me a pretty bad reporter because I, I definitely had tunnel vision at the time. Um, I'm not very proud of it, but I'm just being honest. Um, you you were in Oklahoma City, which was kind of where the action went down. Um, I was I was in Sacramento that night. They Pelicans were tipping off there a little bit after that that Thunder Jazz game was supposed to start. But just kind of take me through that night and the next 12, 24 hours for you. Yeah, that night was that night was crazy. Uh, it's weird because earlier in the day, um, me and a couple of the other jazz writers, we were in Oklahoma City. We'd gone out to lunch uh, right after we'd done uh, shoot around interviews, and uh, we had asked to talk to Rudy that morning. We were told uh, he's he's sick and he's not going to be at shoot around, and so you guys won't be able to talk to him. And uh, when we reported that that morning there were obviously some questions that came out like, Oh no, like, is it the coronavirus? And so like collectively on our way to lunch, we had texted the jazz and we said, Hey, can we just say that this isn't the coronavirus because people are already going crazy online. And they were like, no, we can't say what it is or isn't right now. And so that was like the first indication, like, all right, well, if you're not ruling it out, you know, you can't rule it in either. And so we just didn't say anything. And then it was seconds before tip off. I mean, the, they'd already announced starters. They were, the ref had the ball. They were going out to the middle of the court and the trainer ran, ran out into the middle of the court. One of the medical staff guys for the thunder, uh, cause they'd gotten Rudy's test results back and that he had tested positive for COVID-19. And it was just such a weird scene. Cause like already I was like a little uneasy because like I'd said, I'd been uneasy about being in arenas at least for a week before everything went down and the PA announcer comes on after what felt like maybe 20 minutes or so and he said uh, the game has been postponed you're all safe so like in a building with thousands and thousands of people saying like you're all safe is probably like the most unsafe thing you can hear and so everyone was freaking out there were reports that like there was a bomb scare that police were on their way to the arena like there was all this stuff going online and we were trying to 
the reporters were trying to get down to the locker rooms and we, they wouldn't let us in any of the tunnels, which was super weird. As you know, you're allowed anywhere in the bowels of any arena as a media member and they wouldn't let us go anywhere. And so we ended up just kind of posting up by the, like where the buses dock at the arena so that the teams can get on buses and head out. And we were waiting there for hours and hours while the team was quarantining the locker room and you know, that's the reporters, like, we were just wondering, like, okay, we eventually learned that it was Gobert that had tested positive, that the team was quarantined, and then the news came out, the NBA had suspended the season, and we're sitting there, we're like, okay, well, we talked to these guys very close, on the road, every day, they're sweating on us, talking to us in really close quarters, like, should we be worried? And there was just no information, no one was talking to anyone, it was just like a very scary six hours <laughs> where we just sat there and we had, we didn't know what to do. Eventually CDC and the health department at Oklahoma got to the arena and they were tested all of us. And we weren't, because we had been in contact with someone that was a confirmed case, we weren't allowed to fly commercially. So we ended up on the jazz's charter flight to get back to Utah. the <laughs> next day. And like, I did, but at first, like we didn't know if we were going to even be able to get on that. So when we were told by the CDC people that we couldn't fly commercially, we we're like, okay, well, we don't live in Oklahoma, so what do we do? And it was a, it was just a really weird nightmare. And then I didn't sleep at all. The next day when I got home, the flight landed, and we were immediately met by the state epidemiologists and everyone who were trying to explain to us what to do because we were some of the first cases in the state, and. Uh, yeah. And then it was 14 days of just being locked in my apartment and not going anywhere um, because we were in such close quarters with Rudy and Donovan, who also had later tested positive. So very, very weird scene. Looking back on it that night, I was anxious and angry and scared. And looking back on it, I was like, I'm actually pretty impressed with how the whole thing was handled. I was not impressed night of, but now I am. <laughs> What was that flight back like? I mean, were the guys all, you know, sitting in their seats as you guys are, are filing into the plane? It's like, uh, what's up, Rudy and Donovan? Yeah, well, so Rudy and Donovan, because they tested positive, they weren't on the chartered flight. They had to get private flights back by themselves because, and I mean, it was a, it was a struggle just for the Jazz to get a chartered flight because um, they'd missed their original takeoff time, which was going to be right after the game that night. And so they had to get a different takeoff time. And then also they were required to, even though everyone had tested positive that was going to be on the chartered flight, they had to get a flight crew that was going to agree to fly a plane full of people who had just been in contact with two people with coronavirus. So they were working all through the night. I mean, they had to find a hotel that night. It was a whole ordeal. And so when we all got on the plane, it was everyone knew the situation. We met the team at their hotel before we got on the flight. So they knew we were going to be on the flight with them. No one was weird about it, but the flight was weird. Cause like no one was excited or happy. No one was like talking. Everyone was just kind of somber and, and just waiting to get home after such a long night. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't imagine the mood of that thing. Um, I want to ask you about normal times too, because the Pelicans and the jazz played two really fun games this year. Um, in the second one, Brandon Ingram in New Orleans, Brandon Ingram had 49 points. Donovan Mitchell had 46. It went into overtime. I think it was probably the best game I attended this year. What do you remember about that one? Well, the thing is, is that it was 10 days before that game that the Jazz had played a game in which, you know, 
Ingram went up for like a game in game ending game tying shot the and Rudy got in his way on the shot and in my eyes it could have gone either way you could have said that well gotten his way is an interesting phrasing <laughs> yeah like it could have been that Ingram fouled Gobert on the shot or it could have been that Gobert fouled Ingram on the shot either way I would have been like yeah there was probably a foul on the play and then the there was like like five minutes of review in the arena, the refs were reviewing the play, but it turned out that they weren't reviewing the play. They were reviewing to see if there was a clock malfunction. And so there was no foul called, so they couldn't retroactively call it. And it ended up being like really controversial because in the next day's last two minute report said that Rudy had fouled Brandon. So then 10 days later, we're back in New Orleans again. And I remember there were like, fans that had signs that were that were like it was a foul or justice for ingram and uh there was all like this fuel going into that game and then it i mean the whole ending of that game was crazy it was like that jackson hayes foul before the clock started on a tip-in shot at the end of regulation and then gobert fouls out during overtime and then another like last second uh, try it was like Donovan Mitchell was going for a fast break layup at the end and he missed the layup to try and tie it again it was like every game has been crazy between these teams yeah yeah I mean I, I just remember the Pelicans going nuts in the locker room after they won that second one they they tried to dump water on Brandon Ingram he evaded them you know he didn't want to mess up his hair or anything like that but I think that's part of why they were so hyped is that you know a week and a half earlier they just lost a pretty painful game to them and, you know, as far as the, uh, the the collision at the rim between Rudy Gobert and Brandon Ingram, are you? I remember asking Jazz Media after the game, like, do y'all think that was a foul? And you're like, I don't know. Are you are you ready to come into the light now? <laughs> no, I'm not ready to come into the light. Okay. I was just watching that play earlier today because I was writing like a schedule breakdown for Orlando. And there's all these different angles. And there's like one where Brandon has his arm wrapped around Gobert as he's going up for the shot. I'm like, you could have called a foul on anybody on this. But what's an, what annoys me is that there was a foul committed. And yes, Gobert fouled also. But like there was no foul called. And so I just don't how you know how you could have seen that play. Kane, Kane Fitzgerald in all of his glory. Kane Fitzgerald. I think that... Alvin Gentry might have named some names that night after the game. That was probably the angriest I saw him this year. Alvin's a pretty uh, chill dude, but yeah, let's just say there was some anger at the officials after that one. But those are those are very fun games. Um, how are you just feeling about the Jazz going into this thing? You know, they're they're without Bogdanovich, obviously. Um, I mean, whatever chance they had to to maybe get to the final, surprise some people. I mean. Do you feel like it exists at all without Bogdanovich? No, I don't think so. I mean, I'm sure that there's a faction of jazz fans that are really optimistic about their chances and think that maybe like George Niang could come in and knock down enough threes to make up Bogdanovich's points. But uh, it's just not enough. They're not deep enough. And uh, he was so, I mean, that's a 20 point per night guy who shoots like 40% from three and he's, a, you know, a six, eight small forward. So it's like size and scoring and everything that you'd want from that position. And it's hard to make up for that, especially because they had him all season 
and they got into a really good groove with him. And so you're walking into a situation in Orlando where everything is weird and everything is different. And you have to put in the new variable of, oh, we're going to have to get used to being sort of this new team without him. So it's a weird situation. I think they're still a good team, but I think they're probably very middle of the pack. Bogdanovich is a personal favorite of mine. And, you know, trying to describe why, I guess I would say, you know, he's a smart player, but the man is here to get buckets. I mean, he had a game this year against the Pelicans where he had 35 points, took 21 shots, made 10 of 10 free throws, zero rebounds, zero assists, zero blocks, zero steals. That was one of the first times I've ever seen that done. I was I was in awe after that game. I was like, he had a really good game, but he didn't do literally anything besides score the ball. Yeah, and uh, uh, that was, I mean, that's what they want him to do. So he did it, <laughs> you know, like, how much more can you ask of the guy? There were tons of jokes within the locker room. The jazz players made fun of him for that uh, for quite a while after that. And then there was, I think, a game, either the game after that or a couple of games after that. And he had like one assist. And he was like, ah, one better than last time. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, he's a personal favorite of mine just for watching uh, for a lot of the same reasons. I feel like, I covered the Sixers before I came to cover the Jazz. And even being in the Eastern Conference while he was with Indiana, it's probably, you know, due in part because Indiana is a small market and it's not one of the teams that's nationally discussed a lot of the time. But I don't think that there was much of a light shown on him. A lot of people didn't really know anything about him as a player, even though he was, you know, a starter and a, and a great shooter. And so seeing him up close this season with the Jazz, it, I mean – He's a really, really versatile player, and he gets buckets even when he's not on the three-point line. He, I mean, he can score in such a number of ways. Yeah, I think that uh, first-round series between the Pacers and the Cavs, when the Pacers almost upset them, was pretty eye-opening for me when I was like, oh, this guy is, is really a player. Yeah, yeah and uh, his, uh, his salary definitely uh, shows that. <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite things to do is just look at his basketball reference page and just look at the blocks. Like, I, I can't remember off the top of my head what it is for his career, but um, I mean, I think that year with the Pacers specifically, he might have had one block. Respect. Like, anybody who, who could just get by, you know, make that much money and, and all they're there to do to get buckets, you have my respect. I mean, that's not the way I can go through life, even metaphorically speaking, but I, I tip my hat. I tip my hat. Um, uh, when, I was, when I was covering uh, the Warriors, uh, Andre Godala, who is known for being a defensive guy and and lauded for his defense we were talking to him one day about defense and he was like you know even my kids he's like I don't tell my son to play defense and he was like look at the contract that like Steph Curry or Clay Thompson are going to be on he's like I tell my son to shoot buckets because that's how you're going to get noticed and like it's not a lie (laughs) yeah well what's so interesting to me about the NBA is all these guys were the studs on their high school team for the most part. And, you know, a lot of these guys have to sort of reinvent themselves when they get to the pros. When I was in Denver, I remember Malik Beasley, you know, very talented recruit, uh, one and done player at Florida state. And, you know, the nuggets already had a lot of offense. They had a lot of guys who were going to shoot the ball. Um, they kind of had that hierarchy figured out and, you know, Malik, his way to get on the floor was, to try and play defense, like you're going to get the occasional spot up three, but there's really not much room in our offense for you to like try to take your guy one-on-one off the dribble. Like if you get the ball, we either need you to take the spot up three if it's there or, you know, use one or two dribbles to get to the rim and make something happen. 
but a lot of these guys just have to to fit into different roles, I think. Like you said, a lot of these guys, they're like the best player on their high school team. They're, you know, McDonald's All-Americans. They're really highly recruited by D1 schools and they get to the NBA and it's like, okay, you have to really find a niche so you can get 10 minutes on the floor. Like you really have to carve out a specific spot for yourself because just being an all-around player, uh, what it looks like on the way to the NBA is not always what it is in the NBA. Yeah, I remember uh, Torrey Craig, I mean, he didn't play anywhere big. He's from a small town in South Carolina. Um, and his, his coach at South Carolina Upstate basically told him, like, if you want to play pro basketball, you're you're just not going to be, like, the number one, number two, number three scoring option on your team. It's going to be, you know, entirely through dirty work. And he figured that out the latter half of his college career. And that's pretty much what he does now. He just, he just rebounds and plays defense. And I think after this season, he's going to get a pretty nice deal from someone. So... I always, I always like watching that. It's, it's pretty interesting to me, the guys who are willing to adapt a little bit. Yeah. I want to shift here and ask you about the article that, that Tim McMahon came out with today um, on the Gobert-Donovan-Mitchell dynamic. I mean, this was stuff that me, as a person in New Orleans who's not incredibly sourced, like I was even hearing about this you know, throughout the pandemic, pandemic. It's not even really a secret that you know there was some friction there. And... You know, the vibe I got from that article was just, you know, we're coworkers and and we have to find a way to figure that out. How would you just describe that relationship being up around this team this year? Yeah, I mean, if you've got two star caliber players on any professional team, I mean, any like two very valuable contributors to whatever product it is that you're putting out, much less sports, you know, there's going to be tension because people are going to feel that they have the best ideas or that they're, they should be the one leading at certain times. And so uh, we talked to Rudy a few days ago and, you know, he was really honest and saying like, I don't have perfect relationships in my life, which I think is not something a lot of people would be willing to admit, but which I think is probably universally true for everyone that any relationship in your life is not without some kind of flaw, whether it's, uh, co-workers, teammates, uh, family, friends, partners, there's tension in all relationships. And so the idea that people would expect for Rudy and Donovan to be absolute BFFs and like just rainbows and puppies around all the time, like that's just not the situation. They're two star players and they're very different players. And they're not even in like in the same friend groups within the team. And so I don't think that it's anything more than that. I think a lot of it was overblown partially because what else was there for us to talk about over the last three months, you know? Yeah. And so if Donovan Mitchell is mad at Rudy Gobert, people are going to latch onto that and talk about it because there's no basketball, there's nothing else going on. And with both of them kind of coming up on large contract situations, uh, you know, Donovan is going to be, able to sign a max extension off his rookie deal and Rudy is going to be eligible for a super max extension. And so the idea that we're going to build a team around these two guys and use a huge portion of our salary cap to do it. If there's any sort of fracture in that relationship, that's irreparable, then that's a big deal. But I don't think that it is that. And, you know, in talking to both of those players and guys around the team and people who know them, I think that it's fine and it's just sort of normal day-to-day tensions that you would get in that situation. 
Yeah, one of the the lines in that story was, "Hey, Shaq and Kobe won three titles together, and and they didn't like each other at all," which is true. But also, Shaq and Kobe were probably the best two players in the league at that time. So that I mean, the talent was just overwhelming. I mean, I agree that you don't have to be a BFFs to to be really successful together. But like, I I kind of think that you've at least got to make sure you're pulling in the right direction. Um, so I don't know. It's at least something to, to monitor. Yeah, I think that's the point that both of them were trying to make when they talked this week. They both said, you know, whatever's happening between us or like whatever rifts there are between us, the most important thing is like we're both on the same page for what the team has to do and what we have to do on the court. Like we are in full agreement on those things. And so everything else is just sort of tangential to the situation. And, you know, to the point about, you know, Shaq and Kobe – winning three titles and not really liking each other, at least part of the way. Well, I was talking with um, one of my coworkers uh, earlier today on a podcast, and he said, are there situations that you can think of where best friends led to a championship? Like, that's the harder thing to point to. You could very easily point to, like, teams that had a lot of tension, that had risks, like no one liked Michael Jordan, Shaq and Kobe didn't get along. And like, yeah, those are the best players that we can think of for these examples. But like every other team, there's always like fights in the middle of the season or tensions that get along. And never is there a situation where people like teamed up and they're like, listen, we're best friends. We get along. We never fight. And we won like six titles. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're exactly right. Life, life is just messy. I mean, I would say D Wade and LeBron were really close friends, but like there was, there was definitely tension on those teams. I mean, I think it's just part of it. You can't, you can't not spend this much time around somebody and, and they drive you a little bit of cra- crazy. So I completely get that. Um, I'm going to ask you to play armchair psychologist for a minute, which I absolutely hate when people do that to me. So, I love it. Let me judge okay. every situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like when people ask you to put, play armchair psychologist as a beat writer, that Sometimes it gets you into trouble. You have to be careful. So that's why I'm asking you, and I refuse that you ask me. But there was a line in that Tim McMahon story um, that, that basically said, you know, some of the people close to Gobert believe that, you know, this insecurity or vanity or whatever you want to call it is rooted in this idea of being not the cool kid, basically, in France, is being kind of a gangly kid who wore glasses. A quote from a j- anonymous jazz staffer said, part of it is he's always trying to overcome being that goofy kid in high school do you do you think there's any validity to that i don't know that's actually a great question i mean i don't know the guy enough i think to say that i think probably what's more telling is actually the quotes from rudy that are in that story uh where rudy says uh, like, I understand why there's a spotlight on Donovan Mitchell rather than me or a, a larger one on him. Like, what he does is cool. Like, it doesn't look cool to be, like, the center who, like, blocks shot or gets screen assist. It looks really cool to, like, cross guys up and, like, dunk the ball after you, like, penetrate through an entire defense. That looks really great. And that's what Donovan does. And he even said, like, if I was 12 years old, I wouldn't want to watch Rudy Gobert. I'd want to watch Donovan Mitchell. And so I think even if there is that thing that Rudy's trying to get past where he's trying, he's constantly fighting against that identity that he had when he was younger. Even if that's true, I think he's really self-aware. And so I think that's helpful moving forward because even if he knows, like he knows that about himself, he knows that there's not as much of a spotlight on him and he knows what he was like when he was younger, but he, I mean, he's also a two-time defensive 
player of the year and like he's very cool and he like has really interesting style and like people fawn over him and that's not to say like nba players can't have confidence issues but i think that his the self-awareness that he has is probably really good for him moving forward yeah one of the the practical f- fixes i think i i got from reading that article was you know maybe rudy just doesn't have to be so pissed off when they don't lob him the ball like when you know Maybe they they kind of shade towards Donovan on the pick and roll, and Rudy's you know sort of halfway open, but Donovan shoots it anyway. Like maybe just don't be as mad. I mean, it seems like you know Rudy gets the ball a fair amount. I mean, he's led the league in dunks a couple of times. Um, it's it's just a consistent thing. I've seen a Jazz game of, of him throwing it down an alley oop. Um, I don't know. Do you do you think that is like a, a practical fix for this? Of just don't be mad and like scolding your teammates when you know those times you don't get the ball. Yeah, I think I mean, there's a lot to take away from this whole situation for both players. Um, and most notably, your point is the one that Gobert can take away is I shouldn't get on guys as much as I do. And then on Mitchell's side, he overreacts, you know, like getting so mad that it leaks to the media that you're pissed off at a yeah. teammate for how he acted during a coronavirus pandemic during a time when, like you said, not many people knew things about this. And like, we were really ignorant to this whole situation when the NBA shut down. And so that was probably an overreaction. And it was part of the reason that this whole thing has become overblown. And so yes, Gobert can totally tone it down and like not get as mad at his teammates. And then Mitchell can work on like overreacting to small things. I think you have covered some really interesting teams. Um, you know, before you were in Salt Lake City, you covered the Warriors and the Sixers. Those are obviously two of the NBA's largest, most passionate fan bases. Um, how would you just describe the differences between them in in a couple of sentences? Between the Warriors and the Sixers? Yeah, the fans specifically. Yeah, um, I tried explaining this many times while I was in Philadelphia, and I think that. I didn't do a good job of it while I was there, but I, I figured it out now. Um, I don't think that a lot of fan bases are actually that different, I, even in multi-sport towns. I think that if you're a fan of a professional team, everyone thinks like, oh, those fans are crazy or, oh, those fans are really annoying. But like all fan bases are like that. All fan bases are crazy. All fan bases have annoying fans and loud fans and fans that say like wild things. That happens everywhere. Philly has a reputation of their fans being very crazy and very intense. And I think that the fan base feels like they have to live up to that a little bit. And they, I think they're just like any other fans across the country. Um, but they have like that extra thing where they're like, oh, no, you don't understand Philadelphia. And it's like they only say that because of the reputation. They're not really that different. So I think... You can find that anywhere. You know, I think East Coast people get a little angrier than West Coast people do. There, there is sort of that like laid back West Coast feeling versus like a sort of on edge East Coast thing. That can be a little true. But I mean, fan bases everywhere are maniacs. <laughs> Wells Fargo Center was one of the favorite, my favorite places I visited this year. I don't know. I mean, I, I think you're right that that every fan base has you know, the same quality to some degree, but I do think Philly fans are, are like kind of savage in the way that not many other fan bases are. Do you think, do you think that's fair to say? I mean, 
I mean, Philly fans in general, they they pelt, they threw snowballs at Santa Claus. See, that's the thing is that there's like these few instances where like they they threw snowballs at Santa Claus or like they threw batteries at a different person or like one Eagles fan ate horse poop after the team won the Super Bowl. Like there's like these tiny instances that continue to like perpetuate the idea. But like in between those instances that like keep getting brought up every time the team is brought up. I think the fan base is like just as crazy for their team as anyone else's. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, one of the, the things I would say for Sixers fans in the past few years is they, they boo their own. I mean, they, they love their own, but they're also not afraid to, to boo their own players. Like wasn't even, wasn't Joel Embiid even getting it a little bit. Yeah. And Ben Simmons got it. And uh, <laughs> Ben Simmons made the mistake of saying like, Oh, if you're going to boo, like go to the other side, like go, you know, cheer with the other team's fans. And Philly was like, no, how about you just play better and we won't have to boo you? <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's a really, uh, it's, it's like, that's an endearing and it shows sort of like uh, an IQ of that fan base where they're not going to just pander to their own team. If their team is playing like crap, you know, they're going to tell them like, no, we expect you to do better. And if you don't, we're going to let you hear it. One of the best parts attending a Sixers game is the song they play after they win. Clap your hands, everybody, for Philadelphia 76ers. I, I like laughed out loud when I heard that. It's so yeah. good. That's a great song, yeah. And it's, man, I didn't realize that that was in my head as much as it was until you started singing it, but it sticks with you. Yeah, you can't see her face, but she was like bobbing her head. She was into it. She, I mean, she almost got her iPhone out and and turned on the flashlight and started waving it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> it's good stuff. Um, JJ Redick was on those Sixers teams. Um, he's obviously now with the Pelicans. You know, covering JJ has been really interesting. He's a a really smart, articulate guy, and he's not afraid to let you know when you ask a stupid question. Um, <laughs> One of my questions got swatted into the eighth row this year. I'll tell you the story real quick. Um, you know, the Pelicans have been really bad in, in clutch situations this year among, you know, the worst teams in the NBA. And it was really bad at the beginning of the year in particular. Zion was hurt during this time. And so they were going to Brandon Ingram a lot, which is hard because he's 22. He's in his fourth year. I mean, it, Drew Holiday was kind of the other guy and he just wasn't getting it done. And, you know, Brandon had his struggles, um, and I was trying to ask JJ a question about that specifically of of you know their offense late in close situations. And I was I made the mistake of using the phrase, Do you have any advice for Brandon? And he just looked at me and said, If I have any advice for Brandon, I'll tell him. I won't tell you. And that was it. <laughs> did you did you ever have any instances of, of that happening to you, of getting your question swatted into the eighth row by JJ? Um I can't remember a specific instance where uh, he hated my question as intensely as he hated yours. Uh, <laughs> but we did have a really interesting, I'm just seeing, sort of as a group, we had an interesting back and forth with JJ while he was in Philadelphia because uh, it was during the Markel Fultz saga. For those that don't remember, Markel Fultz, number one overall draft pick, forgot how to play basketball. Um, and that's that's kind of oversimplifying the situation. Uh, but it was really weird. You know, it was like, is he injured? Is he not injured? Why isn't he playing? And then his shot was completely different. And there was all these hitches in it. It was just a very strange situation. But and understandably, 
a huge topic of conversation, not only within the media, but the fan base and everyone else, uh, because no one was really getting answers on what was going on. And then, you know, we had this huge press conference with the GM at the time, Brian Colangelo, which that's a whole other story we could get into about the weirdness of the Sixers. Um, and we were asking him questions about Markel Fultz. And I mean, this was like a 23 minute press conference right before a practice session. And the too long didn't read version is he didn't really give us any answers. He just left us with more questions and it was terrible. And he kind of walked away at the middle, at the end of it with while we still had questions and it was very weird. And so when we walked into the, the practice gym, there's Fultz over there getting up jumpers oddly and with a weird shot. And so, you know, that was the story of the day. And so immediately we all took out our phones and we started filming. And so JJ yelled over at us and he was like, you know, what the F the guy's, you know, 19 years old, like leave him alone. He was like really mad at us. And the, you know, I can completely understand where JJ was coming from because like he sees it as like a teammate who he's sort of a mentor to. And the guy, I mean, he's clearly struggling with something. And then we all walk into the room and we're all pointing our cameras right at him. Like I can't make things any easier at the same time. Like if the Sixers don't want us doing that, then like wait 10 minutes and have him shoot the ball. We're not in the room. Uh, You know, so that was, there was a lot of missteps on, on that team from every person in the room, but um but JJ was really vocal. I mean, he yelled at us. He was not happy with how we'd walked in there and started filming him. And uh, he really let us know. But I had really good conversations with JJ. And he's the kind of guy where uh, if you're covering a team that he's on and, you know, in front of a camera, he'll answer questions, he'll swat away the bad ones, and he'll kind of give run-of-the-mill answers when he doesn't really feel like talking that much but if you can get him alone or get him with just one or two people off to the side not in front of the camera he's really really thoughtful and he really takes the time to to think the game through and think the questions that you have about the game through and I appreciate that a lot while I was covering him yeah I I actually appreciate it I mean I didn't mind it at all I wasn't mad even when it happened because I think more players should do that to be honest of if it is a stupid question just be like you know, let them know maybe a little more politely, um, but just say like, just try to explain now nah, that, that wasn't, you know, that's really not the right line of thinking. So, so much of media just asks bad questions. There's just so many stupid questions to these guys of like cliches and things like that. I mean, I remember, I remember after this is just an example. I remember after Kobe died this year, somebody, somebody asked Jalil Okafor, like, do you think, uh, you know, NBA players like won't take helicopter rides as much anymore? And it's like, what, like, what are you supposed to do with that? And he was um, really nice about it. But like those sorts of things happen all the time. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of questions that I really wish would get, would get swatted away. I'm sure you have the same experience, too, where, you know, sometimes people will just ask questions to hear their voice heard and not only is the question bad, but any answer you could possibly get to that question is just useless and cliche. And it's, it's not even worth rewriting the quote that you get because it's so useless. And so a lot of those, I would love if they got swatted away. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I, what I appreciate about JJ too, is kind of what you hit on earlier. Um, I think he's a very empathetic person. I think that's kind of come through, you know, 
during the Black Lives Matter movement. He's been pretty vocal about just, you know, white people need to, to listen and, and be better. And, you know, police brutality against black people is, is not a political issue. It's just something that we all should just be on the same page about. So I think it's been cool, you know, seeing him use his platform and, and his voice for that. Yeah, I'm not I'm not surprised at all that he's been super vocal about that. He has pretty strong opinions politically, um, whether or not you agree with him, but they do lean into a person who is very empathetic. And so it doesn't surprise me at all. What was your uh, what was your vantage point for Kawhi shot? What do you just remember about that moment? Oh, man, I feel that moment that could have been an hour long, those four bounces on the rim. I remember so many things that happened just during those bounces. It, it's crazy to me that it was such a quick moment because like, as he was running down the floor, there was like no time at all left. And I remember looking at the person next to me, another Sixers writer and saying like, can you believe they're going to go to a game seven? <laughs> like I, I couldn't believe that it was actually going to happen. And then the shot went up. And we looked at each other and I was like, there we go. Game seven. And then it bounces and it bounces. And we look at each other again. And I was like, no way. And then it's like, we look back at the court and it went in and we were just both frozen, completely stunned. It, was, it felt like it was so like we had so much time in between the bounces to look at each other and evaluate what the situation was. That was an amazing shot. That game, that whole game was amazing. That was one of the, the better playoff games I've seen in person. Yeah, the, the image of Joel Embiid just in tears after the one, that one is still kind of burned into my mind. And I, I mean, I respected it. It's like this guy wanted to win that bad. I mean, I wasn't, I, I think it was kind of dumb that, that people were mocking him or whatever. What was it just like, you know, talking to those players after that game? I mean, that was, I mean, as much of a heartbreaker as a game could be. Yeah, and it, for the idea that players don't get emotional after losing or winning games, uh, I don't know that it, that people know that that happens a lot. That happens more than people think. It happens during the regular season. It happens during the playoffs. And it's just that it's not always cut on camera. Or it's not reported out. And I I'm of the belief that, if you care about something to the point that it's making you going to cry, then it's only good. That's only good that you can care about something that much. And I felt bad for the guy. And he wasn't the only one in the locker room that was upset. And, uh, and even JJ, it was hard for JJ to see his teammate cry. Like that's one of the things that really affected him. And again, coming back to his empathy, like it was hard for him to see Joel hurt that much over that situation. And, uh, I mean, that was it's such a weird night because we also thought that like Brett Brown was going to get fired after that. Uh, it was, and he kind of had this weird farewell to the media press conference. It seemed like after that game, um, he was like shaking people's hands and stuff. And, and then he came back the next season. So uh, that was a weird night, a long one. Yeah. A very long one. Cause I had to drive from Toronto back to Philadelphia that night without sleep. You drove. Wow. How long is that drive? Uh, it's about eight hours. Wow. Holy crap. Yeah. I have, wasn't I have no sense. I mean, I've lived in the South and Western United States all my life. I've really no sense of 
what it takes to like drive distances out east or anything like that. But that's a that's a trip on, on no sleep. That's because NBA teams they insist on doing exit interviews the day after um, a playoff exit. And so it doesn't matter where you are, you got to be in that city the next day. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, because of Kawhi shot, I feel like no one is going to remember Jimmy Butler's coast to coast layup right before that. Um, I, I personally am a pretty big Jimmy Butler fan. Um, <laughs> I think that that profile that Lee Jenkins wrote about him a couple years back is like one of my favorite pieces of NBA writing ever. It has a line in there, grimy season never ends. And I thought that was, you know, so Jimmy Butler. He's he's always kind of in that mode. Uh, you know, you saw him like waking up at 3 a.m. to go work out in Miami, which is just, it's just bad for you. Like th- that's not good for you medically. It, it makes no sense, but it still makes me laugh. It's very Jimmy Butler. Um, wh- what did you just think about being up close around him and, and getting to cover him? Yeah, me and, me and Jimmy have <laughs> like a, uh, a love-hate relationship. I think he he was annoyed because I was kind of the one of the ones that wouldn't back down from him uh, in a scrum <laughs> or during a press conference. And so, even during the playoffs, uh, I think it was against Brooklyn. You know, they they like you have to raise your hand to get a microphone, and then a PR person will come over and give you a microphone. You'll ask the question. It's all like televised. And so I get the microphone. And he looks up to see who has it, and he goes, "Oh, here we go." <laughs> so <laughs> rolls his eyes and I'm like, all right, calm down. <laughs> yeah. His persona, uh, we got into it one time when he said, he was like, Oh, I'll be up at 5am and at the gym before any of you guys are even awake and writing your stories. And I was like, okay, well, like I won't get back to town from covering your game until 5am. So yeah, that'll be when I'm going to bed. I'm still going to get like, not a lot of hours of sleep. What's your point? Like we're all not getting a lot of hours of sleep. Um, I don't, I don't know like what the, what his need to like be early is or be awake before everyone else. It doesn't mean that everyone else is not doing the same amount of work. Um, so I don't know. He's a very weird person that I don't a hundred percent understand. <laughs> and also just getting nine hours of sleep is probably something that you should be doing as a professional. Yeah, that's, healthy. that's the healthy way to go is like get more sleep, not like tell everyone they need less. Yeah. I mean, it, it just helps you recover. Um, I mean, like, you know, trying to play basketball when you've gotten four hours of sleep, it's like, I mean, you know, there's enough science out there where it tells you it's like trying sort of like trying to drive a car when you've had a few drinks or something like you just, you just react slower. It's kind of the same effect. Uh, but you know what? I still really appreciate Jimmy Butler and I actually hope I don't have to cover him so I can just have this image in my mind and it it won't be ruined. Yeah. Yeah. Covering him with, was very strange, but, um, you know, it also gave me more of an appreciation for his game because seeing him play up close often, I mean, he's such a skilled player and he truly is one of the few players in the league that can turn it on and turn it off. Um, and that, that, you know, cliche gets thrown around so often with so many players and there are very few who actually feel like they have an on off switch and he's one of them. If he wants to get to the bucket or if he wants to score, he can decide that he's going to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you think the NBA's odds of actually pulling this thing off is? I've been asking every player that question this week and I'm getting mixed answers, which to be expected. I mean, I think it's my natural default to just be really pessimistic about everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I meet my 
my gut instinct when you ask that question is like very low chances because I just feel like it's inevitable that there's going to be like five or six players on one team that get the virus. And are they really going to tell a team that they have to suit up the 10 available players that they have and just go out on the floor? And, you know, are they going to have to shut things down for a certain amount of time? And I'm just really pessimistic about it. Um, That being said, the NBA bubble, uh, my sort of bubble, maybe bubble is what maybe we should actually be calling it. um, Could really be the safest place in the country right now. So Uh, their chances might be a lot higher than I think. Let's go (laughs) 50-50. Wow, stepping out on a ledge there. Um, (laughs) I I think it's a pretty good plan. Um, The one thing that does make me a little bit nervous is the Disney support staff, they're going to be allowed to come in and out, and they're not going to be getting tested. Uh, That was something that came out today. And I know they're supposed to stay six feet away. They're not supposed to be in the same room as the players, but it still makes me nervous. I mean, I, I just think like diligence on everybody's part is going to be so crucial in this. Like, I think, you know, a huge part of this is just people following the rules. And I, I don't know if people are going to be able to follow the rules. Yeah. I mean, if you got, uh, you know, some of the rules are, it's like they contradict themselves because you're going to have every, every player and coach and like team personnel are going to be tested daily and regularly for the coronavirus, but you're going to have people that are making their food and, uh, cleaning their rooms or uh, giving them a pedicure or giving them a haircut that are not being tested. And like, yeah, everyone's wearing a mask, but the players are also allowed to play on a court and like body each other up and like sweat, cough and all of these things, like talk crap to each other in like really close quarters without masks on. And then they're, you know, they get off the court and they're not allowed to play doubles ping pong. Like some of these things don't make sense and they don't add up. Um, And some of them, like you said, the idea that there are going to be people within the quote unquote bubble that are not going to be held to the same standard as the other people. It's that's worrisome to me. Are you going? Uh, I will be in Orlando for a portion. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm sorry. Hang on. My dog is freaking out. (laughs) Can you sit down? I will be in Orlando for part of the time. Uh, I'll be there for the first couple of games and then um, probably a portion of the playoffs, but there's not a ton of incentive for journalists to be there for the the whole stay. Not only is it very expensive, but um, we're going to be doing all of our interviews via zoom. So I'll be back in Utah for the majority of it, but I will be there for that game between the Pelicans and the jazz. I don't know if I'm going yet. Um, If I do, I don't know if I run into you, I'll definitely show you the YouTube video of Rudy hacking Brandon Ingram on the arm and, and we can go through it together or anything. Yeah. Um, you know, come into the light. That's all I got to say. All right. Step into the light. It's hey, warm got, over here. It feels clean. I've got no problem uh, coming into the light. Uh, like I said, I default on pessimism. So I feel like I belong <laughs> on the dark side, um, but I'm an objective journalist. I'm not. I'm not a Jazz fan, and I'm not a Pelicans fan. So I'd happily say that Brandon Ingram hacked, or that Rudy Gobert hacked the heck out of Brandon Ingram. Well, hey, thank you so much for doing this. Where where can people find your work? You can follow me on all of the social medias at NBA Sarah, or you can read my Jazz stuff at Deseret.com. Well, cool. Thank you guys for listening this week. Uh, leave a review, um, and. I'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks.